Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This time of year, people often think of witches, but in the context of Halloween. Yet New England's colonial history included a dark time when people, both women and men, were hanged. Some of them met their end because they didn't conform to the strict Puritan standards and way of life during that time. The witch trials in Salem, Massachusetts gets the most attention, but the first witch hanging in America actually happened in Windsor, Connecticut in 1647. Today, where we live, we talk to author Beth Caruso, who's written a historical novel based on the Connecticut incident. It's called One of Windsor. Have you read it? Or do you know about other witch hangings that happened in your Connecticut town? We want to hear from you. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Um, Beth Caruso joins me in studio. Beth, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me, Lucy. I'm thrilled to be here. You're actually a Connecticut resident. Uh, so tell us about um, this book. Is was I believe your first uh, historical novel? Yes, One of Windsor is the first novel, and I decided to write One of Windsor because I was talking to a neighbor one day. I'm not originally from Connecticut. I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio, and I was talking with her about going to Salem for the first time with my family. And she said to me, her name is Joan, she said, you know, Beth, the very first witch trial victim was from this town. She was a resident of Windsor. And I was absolutely stunned because I hadn't heard this before. There were no signs anywhere in Windsor that I could see that this woman had hanged. And quite honestly, I found it to be an outrage because here was the first case of a woman being accused of witchcraft. And like you said, there were men too. But in this case, she was a woman. And she was hanged for this crime, for this horrific crime, where they accused her of being aligned with the devil to do harm to her community. This first case sparked the rest of the witch trial history for colonial New England and all of colonial America and led all the way up to Salem. Salem was the inferno, but this was the spark that started it all. And Mm -hmm. I thought, what an injustice not to know about it. Um, What a sad thing not to know about this history and to know more about her. How did your friend know of this particular account? Because as you mentioned, it's not really talked about in this state. I'm not really sure. There are a few people in Windsor who knew about it at that point. You know, there was talk, but they didn't know many details about it. And because of that, uh, again, you said this really uh, sparked your interest in learning about her. uh, But because there's not a lot uh, maybe of anecdotes or um, written uh, documents. So tell us, I guess, the research that you had to start and where you went to begin to tell the story. Well, I think Joan told me about this Um, probably before 2010 even, and there's really very little information about her. 
Um, there's only two direct records, in fact. The first one is uh, a journal entry by John Winthrop, the founder of Massachusetts Bay Colony, who said, one blank of Windsor arraigned and executed for a witch. And this was in his journal around the spring of 1647. It was years that nobody knew the name of this person. In fact, they often confused her with Mary Johnson, the second witch trial victim from um, Wethersfield, the second Connecticut witch trial victim. There was one earlier in Boston. But it wasn't until the late 1800s that the Matthew Grant diary was found. But what the Matthew Grant diary actually is was the old Windsor church record. Um, A child of Oliver Ellsworth was actually walking in the rubble of a building that was torn down that had been owned by a descendant of Matthew Grant. And he found this treasure. He didn't know what it was. It was just this old book. And luckily, he brought it to his father, who brought it to the town minister, who said, oh, this is something important. Um, And he gave it to J. Hammond Trumbull, who was our first state librarian and a historian. And J. Hammond Trumbull found on the inside cover a notation that said, Alice Young was hanged May the 26th. 47. And that was the very first time that we even knew her name. This document is now still with the Connecticut State Library. How did you uh, learn of it? Well, it's online at the Connecticut State Library now. Um, you can go there and find all about it. It's You cannot go get the book and put it in your hands as I wanted to do. Um, But it's there, and it's loaded with a lot of important information. It wasn't just that that um, was important about that diary. There are a lot of old sermons and church records. What I found the most important were the vital statistics that are listed in that um, Matthew Grant diary. And Matthew Grant is a resident of Windsor at the time? Yes, he was the second town recorder of Windsor. And he is the one who wrote this original notation that actually had Alice Young's name. Uh, So tell us more about uh, your research process, because uh, you were also looking at uh, town maps. You were thinking about who may have lived around this particular woman. And so uh, plot that out for us. Well, um, for years, I just read background about the Puritans because there I had nothing to go on to find out about this woman. And and I have to say, as far as women's history, as far as Native American history, as far as African American history, sometimes the direct documentation about these people is just not there. And you have to go about things in a very roundabout way. Um, So I finally realized this in 2013, and I'm reading something about how important neighborhoods were in Puritan communities, more important than the church community or the town community. And I thought, that's it. I need to figure out what her neighborhood was like in 1647. Who was she surrounded with? And I took Windsor Land Records and realized that she was in the middle of this larger family. 
called the Tinker family. Um, and this family, they had come from Windsor, England. And, well, the town is called Windsor, Windsor, Connecticut. But anyway, nobody realized this, and um, even the historian Henry Stiles, he never pointed out that there was this other separate group because all these people were women who were the tinkers, except for one, um, and one was a brother who was John Tinker, who actually was assistant to John Winthrop Jr., who is the person who ends up stopping the witch trials in Connecticut. Um, it was interesting because another person who was on Backer Row where she lived, who was part of this Tinker family, a husband of one of the Tinker sisters, was um, actually mentioned during the Salem witch trials. Mm at the bedside of Margaret Rule. Um, so there were all these fascinating connections. But as far as why Alice Young was hanged, I think it fed into part of the reasons because she was from um, a minority group. The, the largest group in town were from Dorchester. They were from the West Country, the Southwest of England. And they, that may have put her at odds. Also, a connection with the Tinker family and Tinkers having a relationship with Winthrop um, may have fed into it, too. Uh, Winthrop, at the time, Winthrop at the time was an interloper in Connecticut. He was starting um, New London as an alchemical center. And he, they uh, were wary of him. So it wasn't until much later that Winthrop became a doctor for a lot of Connecticut and became um, someone well-respected and someone involved in stopping witch trials and a governor for 20 years. At that point, um, a connection with him may have not been as much of a good thing. Uh, my guest today is Beth Caruso. She's author of One of Windsor, The Untold Story of America's First Witch Hanging. It happened in Windsor, Connecticut in 1647. Uh, Beth, you've introduced a, a lot of different names uh, for our listeners. Again, the focus of this book, the story of uh, the woman that was hanged, Alice Young. Because she lived in this particular uh, land plot with this family tinker, uh, was she then, from that, could you glean that maybe she was someone who was a servant to them? Well, I'm not sure. I don't think she was a servant to the Tinker family. Um, I think either her or her husband were either part of that family or connected to them, maybe from the um, old country. And the reason why I say that is because not only were they smack in the middle of this family, they also happened to be um, this family also happened to leave right after Alice Young's hanging, um, which does suggest a connected connection. They all cleared out of town because afterwards. Of, because of stigma, fear that it would happen to them. Well, yes, that often happened. You know, Alice Young had a daughter, Alice Young Beeman, who married a, a, a Beeman in Windsor, and they moved to Springfield and there they had many children, and she was later accused of witchcraft crimes. Um, she, luckily, she was not indicted. She had a son who stuck up for her, and she did not hang. But um, with Alice, I think the main issue with 
the, that situation, pairing the land records with the um, vital statistics from the Matthew Grant diary, you can see that the year that Alice Young tanged, it was a year of a major influenza epidemic. Mm-hmm. And looking at it from an epidemiological perspective, there were a cluster of people that died on Backer Row and right next door to Alice Young. I mentioned the person who was connected to Salem later on. It was actually his children. He lost most of his family. Um, The other part of that is there were very important people in town who also lost their children. The town minister lost two people, um, two of his children actually. The town doctor lost his child. and, and flu, it often does take uh, young people, mm-hmm. and it takes elderly. You know, with the witch trials, things are associated with them like fits and hysteria and, and, and talking in a way um, that might indicate some confusion, seeing mm-hmm. the devil. Well, if you think about it, if somebody has a high fever, then um, they can get confused. Mm-hmm. If someone has an extremely high fever, like children, they have febrile seizures on occasion. So all these things can be connected. I mentioned your book, One of Windsor. Um, It's been out for a few years now, so some of our listeners uh, may have read it already. Uh, But this is actually historical. It's a historical novel. So um, even though the characters are real people at one time, you took some liberties in telling the story. Was that challenging? Well, I, you know, there are many possibilities with what actually happened in the case of Alice Young. And with the novel, you have to choose one pathway. Um, So I really chose what spoke emotionally to me the most. It was important that I bring Alice Young to life in a way that really touched people's hearts. So I wanted it to be a story that was full of beauty because I wanted people to feel the loss of this real person um, after they read the novel. So they would really understand what a witch trial accusation that led to a hanging meant. It meant someone's life was snuffed out, someone who had a full life with richness, um, with many layers. So that was important. Now, the history, of course, is also important to me, too. So in in making the creative decisions and the literary decisions, I also put a section in the back of the book which describes what's real and what's not. Uh, You can join our conversation. Again, we're talking about the first uh, witch hanging in America that happened right here in Connecticut in Windsor uh, many years before, uh, I guess, the epicenter of witch trials that happened in Salem, Massachusetts. You can join us at 888-720-9677. We were actually talking about the Connecticut State Library. And joining us now on the phone is Christine Pitsley, who's project director at the Connecticut State Library right on Capitol Ave in Hartford. If you haven't been there, it's a a great place to check out. Christine, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on. So I understand as project director, uh, you helped digitize and update this uh, transcription of the Matthew Grant diary that Beth Caruso mentioned. Tell us more. Yeah, uh, that was actually my very first project when I started here back in 2008. And I had the privilege of actually handling this diary, um, which, you know, is, is a treasure. 
uh, and it's tiny. Um, and we we did a high resolution digitization of it. Um, so we used our camera and got really good images. And and um, I'm sorry, uh, revised the transcript that had been done by Jesse Parsons back at the turn of the century. Um, there was a lot that she had left out, and so we kind of updated that. And uh, you know, seeing that inside cover where Alice Young is mentioned was was stunning to me. Uh, have again, I had never, like most of your listeners, had never heard that Connecticut had had had, had witches. Mm. Uh, since uh, Beth Caruso wrote her book, do you find that more people are interested to learn about uh, this particular diary and other documents at the State Library, Christine? Absolutely. Um, we've got not only the Matthew Grant diary, but the Samuel Willis papers, which document several other women who were accused, women and men, that were accused and hung for witchcraft. That's really fascinating. We're going to actually talk more about some of these other uh, people that were hanged in Connecticut. But I want to thank Christine Pitsley from the Connecticut State Library, a project director there, for calling in here on Where We Live. You can join us, too, especially if you live in another town where there was a victim of a witch hanging in Connecticut. Uh, again, uh, this happened uh, in the 17th century. The number 888-720-9677. My guest, Beth Caruso, author of One of Windsor, The Untold Story of America's first witch hanging. We'll be back after a short break. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest is author Beth Caruso. Her book is called One of Windsor, The Untold Story of America's First Witch Hanging. It tells the story of Alice Young, who was executed in 1647 and is the first recorded instance in colonial America. Now, Young wasn't the only Connecticut resident to be accused of being a witch. Women and men were tried and hanged in the 17th century in our state, not just in the town of Windsor, but also Wethersfield, Hartford, Stratford, Farmington, among others. Do you live in these towns or are you familiar with the Connecticut witch trials? We want to hear from you. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Beth, again, you were telling us about your research. Uh, It took many years before your book was completed, One of Windsor. I was wondering if you would have time to read a little excerpt from your book. Sure. Let me set this up for you. Alice Young, before she became Alice Young in my story, is Alice Ashby, and she was a servant um, to the Holman family that came over um, to settle in Cambridge, which was then Newtown. So this is the first night that they're in Boston, and then they're at an inn, and they're eating dinner, and they're here with uh, talking with Goodman Humphrey, who is a very dramatic man um, who's been to the colonies three different times, and he's telling them what to be wary of when they're here um, and trying to survive. So this is him speaking. When I first came here, people were dying continually for want of food and medicine. Each woman had to do the work for four men, not just her husband, because there were so few women folk. I remember one family in particular, I, t'was the Carter family from Essex. 
They came one fine autumn day such as this. By springtime, the whole lot of them was dead. Even though the Indians helped us some, the harshness of winter was too much for most, he said, and belched. Continuing, he said, mind you, one must be prepared to make it in these parts, for danger lurks around every corner, pestilence, hunger, loathing of the hard work, boredom, and missing the homeland will surely kill many more. You had best hope you are among the lucky ones, and you've the smarts to survive here. Alice looked on wide-eyed, determined to absorb any useful pieces of survival information. She looked at Winifred seriously and asked, Will we survive in this strange new land, Mistress Winifred? Mm. Again, that's Beth Caruso, author of One of Windsor, The Untold Story of America's First Witch Hanging here on uh, Where We Live. I, I think you do a good job in the book of setting up, uh, again, the, the stress and the uncertainty uh, many had coming over uh, to the Bay Colony and then Alice Young making her way uh, to uh, Connecticut. Tell us more about uh, what was going on socially when she arrived in the colony and what did she think um, from, again, you took some liberties and uh, painting a picture of this woman for us uh, and what she was like as a person, but what she would have thought of, of this uh, particular place after being in England, closer to a metropolitan area. Well, um, during this time, it was a, a, there was a large level of um, insecurity and fears built up um, at the pulpits in the churches. The ministers preached, you know, to be wary. There's the devil lurking around every corner. Um, they viewed the wilderness as the domain of the devil, as uh, something that needed to be settled for Christ. And so there they were, here for religious reasons, uh, to settle the land, to convert the natives, to make it ordered and understandable. But they were really in small pockets of wilderness, a wilderness that they didn't truly know about. Um, they had ex they hadn't experienced all there was out in the wilderness. They had a misunderstanding of native people. They didn't know where the end of the wilderness even was. So it was a scary place for them and they were little pockets in the middle of that. Couple that um, besides that fear of the wilderness and the religious, fears of the time about the devil lurking around every corner. There was the religious feeling of um, predestination, and only a few people were chosen to go to heaven. So that was a little bit scary to people, too. Plus, they had no science to understand um, why certain situations happened, whether it be uh, weather, whether it be diseases and illness, they were battling just to survive. They were starting their crops. They were starting their orchards. Um, they were starting animal husbandry. And if they didn't survive, um, like in that passage indicated, um, the settlement would be difficult it would be difficult for people to go on. So there were all those fears, and they needed explanation, and the belief in magic was alive and well. Um, people practiced 
everyday magic all the time as far as protection spells. Um, there was some basic divination that they used with like Bibles and key tween girls, you know, just like they do today, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in your book, you get the sense that it was also hard to be a young woman uh, yet uh, who has yet to find a husband and to conform to the Puritan standards. Yes, absolutely. Um, women didn't have a lot of power in those days. And um, men spoke for them. Men owned everything. Women had to follow in line. They didn't really have much of a voice of their own. And the women that did find their own voice and become independent, those were the ones who were targeted. Uh, Earlier, uh, you set up for our listeners some of the reasons behind why Alice Young uh, may have been hanged, and that had to do with uh, the sickness that uh, was in that particular neighborhood um, at the time. Uh, Tell us more uh, when uh, you also talk about your book around the state. And I mentioned that there are other cases of uh, residents in Connecticut that were hanged. Were those um, accusations similar? Uh, were, Were there other sicknesses that led people to be accused? Well, there were all kinds of reasons that people pointed fingers at their neighbors to accuse them of witchcraft. I want to tell you the story about uh, Lydia Gilbert, also a Windsor person. This is this was very, very strange. In 1651, the militia was practicing on the town green, and Thomas Allen, a 19-year-old kid, he's mishandling his gun. Um, And he accidentally kills Henry Stiles, an older gentleman. Well, he he has to go to court. His family has to pay a fine. Um, Thomas Allen is not allowed to carry a gun for a whole year. You would think it's pretty much settled, right? No, not at all. Um, the Allen family was a very well-to-do family. I guess they decided they needed to protect their reputation. Um, so what happened was poor Lydia Gilbert gets accused of bewitching the gun that killed Henry Stiles several years, you know, from three years before. Mm-hmm. How is that even possible? Um, it turns out that Henry Stiles had been a boarder with the Gilberts. Um, and maybe the fines weren't fully paid. So to the Gilbert family, um, that may have been a part of it. But in any case, Thomas Allen marries the preacher's daughter after this whole thing happens. So his reputation is cleared, and the Allen family gets to have their fine returned to them, and poor Lydia gets indicted for bewitching that gun. And when uh, people were accused at that time, the trials happened in Hartford? Yes, the the hangings were actually in Hartford. There were 11 Connecticut witch trial victims. Nine of them were hanged right here in Hartford, probably not very far from where we're sitting right now. Do you think uh, near the state house? Uh Well, um, there are different theories about where they were hanged. 
Um, one is at the old state house, and as I said in novels, you have to choose which path you're going to go. That was the path that I chose. Um, at the old state house site, um, that was Meeting House Square. Um, there were stocks, there were pillories, there was a jail cell on the northwest corner there. So some people speculate they could have been hanged there. Um, but Dr. DeVos Love, he was a minister, he talked about um, the hanging site being actually down mm-hmm. Albany Avenue on a hill, probably, you know, right around St. Francis, right around here. Um, so kind of spooky, huh, <laughs> thinking about it. But other people say it's Trinity Hill, but historians I've talked to say mm. um, they don't believe it's there. They um say that's a site for hangings during revolutionary times. Beth Caruso is my in-studio guest, author of One of Windsor, The Untold Story of America's First Witch Hanging. It was in 1647. Alice Young was her name, a resident of Windsor. Uh, again, you can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. Virginia is calling from Farmington. Virginia, you're on the show. Well, ha- hello, Lucy. Hi, Beth. Hi. I know the Virginia I'm talking to. Yes. So tell us. We have uh, a common bond. Tell us, Virginia, uh, what is your connection to Beth or even this uh, subject of Connecticut witch trials? Well, I uh, became familiar with the fact that Connecticut was hanging witches long before Salem uh, years ago when I was working with the Stanley Whitman House here in, in Farmington. And Lisa Johnson, the director, wrote a play, uh, The um, Witchcraft Trial of Mary Barnes. Mary Barnes was a woman in Farmington who was hanged for witchcraft, was one of the last people to be hanged for witchcraft in Connecticut. And uh, that stirred my interest, just as Beth hearing from her friend that we had been hanging witches. And um, that got me so interested in exploring the history and the stories and uh, coming up with a a one-woman play that I do that brings to life five women who were accused of witchcraft in Connecticut. It's a fascinating part of our history that people are now beginning to acknowledge, I think, uh, rather and, and learn about. Well, thank you, Virginia, for calling in to the show to tell us about uh, that play. Uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, Beth, when we talk about, again, uh, the 11 residents who were hanged in Connecticut, we referenced that some of them were men. Uh, why was there that connection? Uh, how, was, how were they connected to women who may have been accused? Um, they were married to them. Basically, um, in the case of John and Joan Carrington, we're not sure what the crime was. We know that John Carrington had committed the previous crime of selling a gun to a native, and that often set you up for a later witch trial accusation. Um, we don't really know a lot about them as far as Rebecca and Nathaniel Greensmith. Rebecca Greensmith was on trial, and she decided she wasn't going down alone. So um, even though her husband was pleading with her to please stop, stop talking this nonsense about me, she said, no, he's a witch, too. And she pleaded, he pleaded, please, let me take care of the children. No, he was there. He was dancing around the circle at Christmas time. Um, with the devil with me too, and she brought him down. Yeah. 
Uh, we should mention as well that uh, since you've written your book, uh, there has been, as Virginia mentioned, a lot of interest in the Connecticut witch trials uh, because uh, you'd mentioned earlier as well that it's hard to uh, figure out where some of these hangings took place. Is that one of the reasons that Connecticut has not talked about uh, these uh, witch trials versus a Salem, Massachusetts, where there may be more um, uh, information about where these uh, witch trials happen, maybe artifacts from that time? Um, well, I think there's several reasons. One is that uh, the witch trials were stopped here earlier by Winthrop Jr. And the other reason, which I think is the more dominant reason, is that there are so few trial records. There's so little information. Um, I should point out, um, Virginia, when she called earlier, she was talking about the Stanley Whitman House. Uh, Virginia is from her story theater, by the way. Um, but at the Stanley Whitman House, they've combined a lot of records from the witch trials here with the Willis papers that the state librarian talked about before. Mm. Um, but relatively speaking, relative to Salem, there are very, very few records. Mm. I wanted to take a quick call. Nicole's actually calling in from Windsor. I understand you're a senior minister at First Church. Tell us about um, your connection to uh, what we're talking about today, Nicole. Yes, yeah, so I'm the um, you've been senior minister at First Church in Windsor, and I met Beth um, when she was working on this project and uh, realized that our church had a role. You know, back in the 1600s, of course, there was a connection between town government, church government. Um, the role of the pastor was uh, had sway, and so we realized that um, part of uh, talk about our church is that acknowledging our role in in the kind of the bad history of the witch trials and the witch hangings. Mm. So we actually um, issued an apology on behalf of our church and um, and publicly did that and supported a town resolution uh, to acknowledge. And we were we were hoping for more of an apology, but an acknowledgement. Um, went a long ways. Well, thank you, Nicole, for calling in and telling us that that really interesting part of of some of the awareness uh, in recent years. Uh, I should mention the Windsor Town Hall, our town council uh, voted unanimously in February of 2017 to clear the names of Alice Young and Lydia Gilbert, uh, two of the victims that we mentioned. We just have a couple of minutes left, uh, Beth. Uh, when you heard that Windsor was doing that, what was your reaction? Um, well, I was actually participating with um, Reverend Nicole Yonkman, who just called in, and Reverend Char Corbett, um, as well as the mayor of Windsor, Donald Trinks, um, uh, Tony Grigo, uh, Brianna Dunlap. Uh, we all came together. The, the church decided um, that was something they wanted to do. And so it, it was very important because it symbolically cleared the names of our witch trial victims. Mm. Again, uh, Beth Caruso was my guest today, author of One of Windsor, The Untold Story of America's First Witch Hanging. Before you go, you have a new book, uh, The Salty Rose. Can you briefly tell us about it? Yes, The Salty Rose. It is a sequel to One of Windsor, but it can be read on its own. It's the 
story, story of the secret influences behind the takeover of New Amsterdam, which later became New York City. Um, it's told in the voice of a salty tavern keeper who relay, conveys to her grandchild her interactions with uh, getting into trouble with the law, but also with some folks from Connecticut, which are from one of Windsor. Mm. Well, we can't wait to hear more about this book. We'll have to have you come back to talk about the Salty Rose uh, for our listeners. Uh, but again, Beth, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. And uh, again, the book is called One of Windsor, The Untold Story of America's First Witch Hanging. Uh, Beth, thank you. Thank you, Lucy. It's been my pleasure. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Up next, we talk about Old Newgate Prison in Coppermont in East Granby, which attracts history buffs and scientists. We'll explain after the break. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The old Newgate prison and copper mine in East Granby is now opened to the public after being closed for many years. The site has a rich history. It dates back to the 18th century. The prison was used during the Revolutionary War and held British prisoners. But today, scientists are also interested in Old Newgate because it's the home to bats. To tell us more, joining me now in studio is Patrick Scahill, science and environment reporter for Connecticut Public. Patrick, welcome back. Hi, Lucy. So today we wanted to talk about bats. This is something that you have done reporting on before, specifically looking at uh, white nose syndrome. But the most recent story was you actually traveled to this really cool place in Connecticut, uh, Old Newgate Prison and Copper Mine in East Granby, uh, to learn about a survey of bats. There, uh, tell us about what made you go. Yeah, so um, Old Newgate Prison and Copper Mine is uh, located on the Metacomet Trail Ridge, as you said, in East Granby. Uh, this was a, a copper mine, a colonial copper mine from uh, 1705 until about the 1750s. Um, didn't really do very well. The ore that they had in there was was pretty bad, and they actually had to kind of ship it out of state to actually get it uh, smelted and get copper out of it. So they decided, okay, well, we'll turn it into a prison, um, which they did, uh, and it was a prison from 1773 till about 1827. Uh, today, it's a tourist attraction, and it's also, as I learned, a, a home for uh, a few, a few bats right now in Connecticut. You mentioned a tourist attraction. I've actually been there with my family, and uh, people who visit can actually go into uh, the cave, which is what you did. Uh, before we get to your trip inside and underneath uh, the ground, tell us about what kind of bats we find uh, at Old Newgate. Sure. Uh, so not many would be the, would be the short answer. Uh, during the last survey that the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection did there. Uh, last winter, um, they found uh, only only 10 bats uh, in the survey. So the numbers are really, really low. Um, this is reflective of declining populations uh, all around Connecticut, uh, all around uh, a major part of uh, the U.S. So bat populations right now um, are not doing very well. 
And that's because of white nose syndrome. Tell us about that disease. Yeah. So um, white nose is a, is a fungal disease, uh, and this is uh, really the, uh, the primary cause of this decline. This was a disease that was uh, first noticed in New York State in uh, the winter of 2006 to 2007. Uh, it's just spread uh, very, very rapidly since then. Um, now it's been documented in at least uh, 33 states, seven Canadian provinces since that first appearance. And uh, as a result of these declines, uh, in Connecticut in particular, uh, cave-dwelling bat species have just declined catastrophically um, and really have not recovered over the past uh, decade. So we've seen declines in species like little brown bats, declines in species like tricolored bats, and uh, the northern long-eared bat as well was a another one uh, that declined. And actually, I spoke with uh, a biologist with the uh, State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, Kate Moran, uh, and here's what she had to say about that species. In New England, bats were very common. Uh, so the northern long-eared bat was probably the most common bat we had throughout New England. Now it is the least common bat we have in New England. So can you tell us more? So the fungus is found in these caves. It impacts these cave-dwelling bats. Uh, but what exactly does it do to the bat if it gets the fungus on them? Right. So uh, the short description there is the uh, fungus gets on the, the muzzle and uh, the, the wings of the bats, uh, and it essentially kind of wakes them up uh, when they're hibernating. And uh, when it does that, the bat wakes up, it's expending more energy, and it depletes uh, the fat reserves that the bat uh, had in place to, to overwinter, to, to hibernate. Um, when that happens, uh, that's bad for the bat, and if those fat reserves run out, that can be it for the bat. Uh, and that's what's happened. And why should people care about these particular bats, Patrick? Well, uh, I mean, bats are, uh, I guess, so there's maybe several answers to that question. The first, from the selfish human perspective, right, is, well, they're helpful to us. They uh, they prey on moths and beetles that can be um, hindrances to human crops. Uh, they also prey on uh, mosquitoes, um, which, you know, obviously have been in the news recently here in Connecticut because of uh, diseases like triple E and uh, West Nile virus. So uh, they help us out a lot, too. And, of course, they have, you know, myriad ecological benefits uh, to other animals, to the ecosystem that they're in. Um, so they're important uh, to the world. Uh, before we talk more about uh, your visit inside, uh, again, Old Newgate Prison and Copper Mine, uh, some of the other reporting that you've done, uh, you've uh, met up with researchers that are actually listening to bat calls. Uh, what is that telling them? Yeah. So, uh, you know, one of the things that researchers are trying to do now is focus on the bats who have been able to survive white nose syndrome. Um, uh, like we were saying, uh, many species of bats uh, have declined dramatically. Uh, we had mentioned the little brown bat going down, the tricolored bat, the northern long-eared bat. Uh, all of these bats are not doing well. Uh, there is another bat species, uh, the big brown bat. Uh, this species has also declined, um, but it hasn't uh, hit, hit the sort of dire levels that other species have. Um, so researchers have been focusing on that uh, bat to um, essentially kind of see where they are, what they're doing. And uh, one way you can do that is just because you can't be everywhere at once is you can set up microphones. So researchers have uh, set up microphones all around the state to uh, record bat calls. Uh, they can figure out uh, where the bats are, what they're feeding on, um, what kind of things they're doing in that area. Um, and uh, they can learn a lot from that. 
Uh, we heard from Kate Moran. You also spoke to um, another uh, staff member at the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection about efforts to conserve uh, the bats. Uh, what did he tell you? Yeah, so uh, another biologist that I met with, uh, his name was Brian Hess. Um, one of the projects he mentioned uh, was uh, was an interesting uh, one and uh, sort of one that when you think about it just makes perfect sense. Um, so uh, in the past uh, few few months and years, uh, there have been programs to install cave gates around uh, the state. Uh, and uh, that's important, uh, A, because you're not going in and disturbing bats when they're trying to, to, to sleep or hibernate, rather. Um, and B, uh, one of the big issues uh, with white nose is, is how it spreads, right? So uh, white nose is a disease currently that um, uh, Brian Hess said is pretty much to deep's knowledge found in all caves uh, in Connecticut. And, um, you know, one of the things uh, that goes along uh, with it being in all those caves is that if people go into those caves, they can spread the disease by getting the fungus on their clothes or on their shoes. Um, so uh, biologists have to be really careful about, about spreading that. Well, it's interesting. When we visited, they made sure that we're wiping our feet before we enter uh, the, the cave, right. so to speak, to go down yeah. into the mine. And then also when we're, we're coming out. Uh, you, you mentioned also that this fungus is found in all caves in Connecticut, which I think is uh, uh, problematic. But uh, there are certain parts of the cave uh, that uh, might actually be safer for bats uh, because of the, the, the fungus isn't there. Yeah, so uh, the fungus uh, does really well in uh, specific conditions within a cave. Uh, well, let's actually just hear from Brian Hess uh, on, on that, that issue right now, though. There are little microclimates within caves that can help bats to survive that fungal load uh, because the fungus doesn't go, grow quite as well if it's warmer or cooler or more or less humid than the fungus really, really likes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one other thing worth mentioning, too, is uh, the fungus does not do well when it uh, is exposed to uh, UV rays or higher temperatures. So if a bat is able to get through the winter with this fungus on their body uh, and emerge uh, when winter's gone, when they go into the sunlight, that's going to kill the fungus. Um, and then that gives the bat some time to recuperate. Mm. Uh, besides uh, learning about uh, more about white nose uh, syndrome uh, in Connecticut, uh, are biologists um, optimistic in terms of the bat population? Because you said earlier, you know, that there's such a so few bats that are remaining in this cave compared to um, you know more than a decade ago. Yeah, um, that that's a really difficult question. I mean, I think uh, so. Bats haven't gone away entirely, right? They haven't, uh, as Brian has said, they haven't blinked out. Is what he told me. Um, and there is a reason for cautious optimism there. Um, there's a reason to still try to conserve these types of species because there are survivors. There are uh, bats that are making it through the winter. Uh, but the numbers are, are they're really bad. Uh, and, and they've been bad over the past decade, and they're not showing any indication of getting better in the nearer term. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I don't think we want to be completely doom and gloom about it, but, but it's not a good situation right now. And, you know, white nose... Um, is a disease that uh, has been spreading uh, even further. Uh, this in 2016 popped up in in Washington State, um, which raised an issue of well, maybe we're not doing a good job at cleaning our boots, cleaning our clothes when we're leaving these caves, because it basically transplanted itself from the eastern part of the U.S. all the way across the country, and bats can't fly that far. So we that must have been on a hiker's coat, it must have been on their shoes, uh, and they must have transported it there. So biologists are, are trying to be optimistic, but they're also trying to just educate the public about the importance of of conserving this vital species. And what do scientists know about a bat's life cycle that can actually make uh, uh, it problematic that white nose 
syndrome exists. Yeah, well, uh, so uh, bats live for a long time. Uh, they only produce uh, usually about one pup uh, or one baby bat <laughs> per year. Uh, and uh, so that means any, any shot of recovery is going to take a long time, uh, which, you know, further underscores the need to take uh, very cautious conservation measures now to when you go into a cave, clean off your shoes, clean off your jacket, and, uh, and, and be thinking about all this stuff because it will take a long time to fix it. <laughs> Some of our listeners might be uh, intrigued to now check out Old Newgate uh, Prison for its history, but also the fact that it's home to these different types of bats. But this is a place that's not open year-round. Yeah, so I'm not sure what uh, what the entire uh, hours are on it, but uh, it is definitely, you know, it's you don't think of copper mines as being a Connecticut thing. You think of, like my wife's from Arizona, and we visited you know caves and mines out there. We think of that uh, that's a West thing, um, but this was it's an interesting piece of Connecticut history. It's a it's a it's also kind of a dark and depressing piece of Connecticut's history as well. Um, and yeah, definitely worth checking out. Uh, you know, I was a history major when I was in college. I love that stuff. So, <laughs> And Patrick, uh, before we let you go, uh, you know, what's next in terms of, you know, continuing to track the bat population and, and seeing what uh, researchers are learning? Sure. Uh, well, um, more winter surveys uh, will be done where scientists go into caves and uh, do things like take the temperature of the cave, uh, spot bats within the cave to kind of see what species are there, what the numbers are. Um, so I think, you know, in the near term, uh, that's research that's ongoing. We had mentioned the bat echolocation research. Um, so th- those are two things top of mind that come into come to my head on that. Patrick Scahill, again, who is the science and environment reporter for Connecticut Public. Thanks for coming in today. And we'll tweet out a link to your latest story at Where We Live. Thanks. Today's show produced by Lydia Brown. Special thanks to intern Jared Todd on the phones. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have a great weekend.